Leonardo was uh, a musician. He was a scientist. He was an inventor. He was an architect. He was a, I said scientist. He was an engineer. He was an in, uh, just a painter, a musician. He was just, you know, he was a hydrophysicist. He came up with uh, irrigation and water systems for the cities in Italy. And uh, we honor him. He has done so much. He actually, in his book, in his, some of you know some of his most famous works. Who doesn't know about the Mona Lisa? Uh, in his notebooks, it's an amazing thing. Can you see what he's written? Yeah, unfortunately, you can't unless you put a mirror to it because he was writing his own notes to himself, mirror-imaged. Because he was left-handed, uh, he would write this way for his own key uh, information that he wanted to write for himself. This way, right to, uh, right to left, like Arabic would or Farsi. Why? So that he wouldn't smudge the ink and he could write faster. But if he wrote a letter to you, he would write it normal so you could read it. He was just that genius and he was doing this on the fly. Uh, he, he painted so many different things. He was commissioned by a number of different famous Italian uh, lords. The Medici family, if you have heard the name, uh, they had commissioned him. He has done some amazing, amazing things. One of his other paintings, less uh, well-known, is the Salvador Mondi, which is the savior of the world. It's a picture or a painting of Jesus. He also was a medical expert. He had dissected and drawn the details of the human body to such amazing detail, cross-sections of the human body. The skull, the, the gut, the womb even. Uh, he took some things and made them even better. He, you know, the Vitru uh, Vitruvian man. He shows us the proportions of humanity. He had studied it to such detail. If you happen to be in Italy and go to Milan, the city of Milan, there's a church called the Santa Maria del Grazie. Santa Maria del Grazie literally means Saint Mary or Holy Mary of Grace. It's a convent, a Catholic convent or a monastery slash convent, and they have a room in there that's their dining room for the monks. And in that dining room, there's his most famous work. The Mona Lisa is in France, in the Louvre, but this one here is phenomenal. It's a painting called The Last Supper. It took him five years to paint it, there are so many different stories that have been spun around it. He wanted to capture the emotions of humanity, specifically of the 12 disciples, when Jesus said to them, at the Passover meal, one of you will betray me tonight. So if you look at the, pic the painting, if you look at the expressions, the hand gestures, all of it is phenomenal the way he has with one painting, captured the moment and the expressions of the human feelings and emotions so well. He has captured, and each of them are named here in this one, 
Uh, this is not on the wall. This is just something that was prepared for us to see who's who. Bartholomew, James, the minor, Andrew, Peter, Andrew's brother, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. And you see him here, and, and some people have noticed that all the heads, the lowest one is Judas. And it's also the darkest face showing that he's in darkness. And he's holding the bag of money with his right hand. And he's reaching with his left hand. All of this, Leonardo thought to put all that in to communicate beyond the obvious. The left hand was considered, I mean, the word for left in Latin, you know what it is? Sinister. And that's where we get the word sinister, meaning not so good, evil, with a scheme behind it. So people that were left-handed were considered to be evil back in the day. We know otherwise today, but he was reaching with his right hand to dip the bread into the bowl there with Jesus. You can see Jesus sitting in the middle, forming a triangle. Leonardo thought all these things through. Like there was other paintings of the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, but he went through a, a very meticulous study and the reason he puts Jesus in a triangular shape in the middle is because he's communicating that he is part of the Trinity. And if you'll notice that the groups of disciples, there's four groups, are in threes. And in the back behind them, there are three windows, all of which relate the Trinity. And Jesus, it's amazing, if you take this paint picture, this painting, flip it over itself, and line up the head of Jesus over the head of Jesus. So the mirror image, like he was into mirror images. He was seeing things that humans couldn't see generally. 500 years ago, he was doing amazing things. He designed a, heli a, a helicopter, a draft of a helicopter. He designed a parachute. This is all built into the human soul, this capacity. God made humans phenomenally capable. So in his eyes, in his mind's eye, he can take this picture and flip it. And when you flip it, the mirror image superimposed over the original, you see the face of Jesus facing you with his heart now open. And there's a chalice right between them, between his hands. It's amazing. Try it someday. If you have uh, an application on your computer and you want to take an image, flip it, and then reduce the density, You'll see what I'm talking about. But anyway, the other disciples, John, and some people have thought because John looks so gentle and, and kind of effeminate there that he was painting Mary. But no, in his notes, he wrote, this is John, the one that Jesus loved. Now, it said in the Gospel of John that John leaned his head on Jesus' chest. He didn't paint it that way because he wanted to capture the shock of the moment where the disciples are hearing Jesus saying, one of you will betray me tonight. Jesus knew who it was. Judas knew who it was. All the other disciples, Andrew saying, no way, man, not me. And then you see Thomas right to the, in front of the window on the right there with his finger pointing. He's, unless I put my finger in his wound, I won't believe it's him. He painted that in. And then you see James, the brother of John, James the Major, Philip, Matthew, the tax collector, Thaddeus, Simon. Amazing. 
Bartholomew and Thaddeus are very special for the Armenians. They're the two apostles that ended up in Armenia to evangelize Armenia back after Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, Thomas, very special for the Indian community, the church in India. He's the one that went to India to evangelize India. These guys gave their lives to the gospel, gave their lives for Jesus. What made it, though, I mean, Leonardo's phenomenal. And he captured these 12 in this cafeteria, this lunchroom, in this chapel in Milan. How did these 12, I mean, there's all other things as well. There's 33133. There's a verse in the Bible. Jeremiah 33, I think it is, verse I'm not going to tell you today because I don't remember right now. My mind is mush. But the rest of the sermon will be clear. <laughs> but this verse talks about the grace of God that overlooks and releases us from the sin that we carry. And it's somehow he's saying, because sometimes he was a skeptic in his own faith. He was saying that God is going to be gracious enough. Jesus' death was powerful enough to atone for my doubt and for my wanderings and he painted that into this painting perspective he understood perspective way beyond our understanding even today if you draw lines from the corners of the painting let's go back one if you draw lines you can see the the, the lines that are uh, you know what i mean by perspective right the depth of field all the lines in the painting center on one point, the face of Jesus. So what made it 500 years later? This chapel has been through hell. It was ignored. He had painted the painting with all the disciples' feet at the bottom, including Jesus. But somehow, a few years... I think it was 50, 60 years later after the painting was finished, and he painted it on dry plaster as opposed to wet plaster. And he was experimenting. He didn't do very well on that experiment because as the plaster and the paint was sitting on it, within six or seven years, it started to chip off. And they thought, you know, whatever, after 50, 60 years, the monks of that chapel decided, yeah, that's Leonardo. Let's put a doorway there. So they cut a doorway into the bottom of the painting. They've since understood, oh, Leonardo. So they closed the doorway and they closed it up, but the painting is still missing the, the feet. There have been reproductions of it, complete with feet, but they don't come compared to this. But the color of it is phenomenal. The, the, the skill that he used to make this color. Why am I telling you all this? You didn't come here to hear about Leonardo. There is something about this painting that inspires awe. If you ever get to Milan, there's all kinds of videos online, by the way, if you ever want to research this some more. If you ever get to Milan and end up at the Santa Maria del Grazie and end up in the rec uh, rectory, I think it's called. It's not the rectory, but it's the lunchroom. It's now a, a, a very climate-controlled 
they only allow 20 to 25 people every 15 minutes and you have to go through a process of being acclimatized yourself before you go in and you have to book I think it's about 50 60 euros a month in advance to be able to go in so don't think you can just show up it's a very special room special lights special air conditioning and humidification to preserve what's happening there there's been many restorations but why is this one so important it's important because who's in it obviously Jesus is very important but that's not who I'm talking about today yeah it is it's about the 12. What earned them the right to be at that meal? What happened that they became present at that meal? Well, they heard something. They heard something. They heard the word come. It wasn't just come. It was come, follow me. So our scripture for today comes from Mark chapter 1, verse 14 to verse 20. And so much has happened already in the book of Mark in these 13 verses ahead of this. He tells us all kinds of things, very fast moving. Mark is just running through the gospel, running through the history. Already he tells us about John the Baptist. Already he tells us about what John was preaching. But after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Do you remember, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue and Luke chapter 4 tells us what he did. He took the, the scroll of the book of Isaiah and he opened it up and he read from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So Mark is summarizing that, running fast again. And he says, the time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near. Not fully here yet, but it's near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, who later became called by Jesus, Peter and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen come follow me Jesus said and I will send you out to fish for people at once they left their nets and followed him when he had gone a little farther he saw James son of Zebedee and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets I guess you can say that these four guys were networkers. Without delay, and they were, by the way. That, that's not just a joke. They were networkers. They connected with people. They knew how to get into people's hearts, lives, places, right? Without delay, he called them, and they left. And, and listen to Mark's words. Not only is he running fast through the history, but he's injecting. He's an amazing writer. As authors go, he has managed to make the gospel, what they call the synoptic gospels, the, the, the gospels that tell the same stories, Mark, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is a bit different, but these three are known by theolo theologians 
as the synoptic gospels. They have more or less the same story. Sometimes the order varies, but they're very similar. But he managed to do it in 16 chapters. Matthew did it in 28. Remember Mark Twain said, uh, I intended to write you a short letter, but I didn't have time, so I wrote you a long one. Mark was an amazing writer. He thought about the words. He picked the right words without delay. Wow. Not tomorrow. No, no, let me think about it. I'll go talk to my wife and see what we decide. I'll let you know. You know, if you're a salesman, a real estate salesman, and you want to get an offer going and they give you that line, you know it's probably not going to happen. They did it immediately, without delay. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired men and followed him. What a story. What a story. These first four disciples of Jesus, Simon and Andrew, brothers, James and John, brothers. They have a lot of history. They knew each other's families. They worked in the same sea, the Sea of Galilee. That sea is, is known in the valley. It sits in the north part of Israel, very close to Lebanon. And it, 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 the water in that sea runs down the Jordan River to the Dead Sea. And when that water in that sea is at normal levels, things are healthy in the country. Think, things are healthy all around that area. But when the rain is not coming and it's a drought, 2009 we were there, we went to visit the Sea of Galilee, and you can see the water line so low because they had a season of drought for a number of years. And you can see the water had receded so much and the docks for the boats had to be extended because the water was low. But in his time, at this time, they were familiar with this environment. They grew up with their father in the boats. It was a family business. They would go out. They knew how to fish. They had to fix the nets. They were mending the nets. Casting nets into the lake, the two brothers, the other two were mending, fixing, preparing their nets. The nets would be thrown out into the water. They would have weights all around them. And it would have a long string all around the net. And as the weights would pull the net down into the depth, they would pull those strings to close the net and make it into a bubble around the fish that's in the water and they would pull it and pull it and pull it until the fish that's in the net and the net itself with the fish would be drawn into the ship into the boat and then they would come back to shore to unload sell the fish and go back out again if it was early enough and they would have to do this early in the morning before the sun heats up the water and the fish go deeper so they had to, to time it right and they knew that there are days that the winds in that area around the Sea of Galilee would blow in such a way that the waves could flip over a boat and kill you. So they knew the dangers of what they were doing. They understood all that. It was in their blood. They probably smelt like fish. They probably had fish scales between their fingernails. Can you smell 
the atmosphere? Can you feel what they were like when Jesus came to them and said, hey, come, follow me. He didn't wait until they went home and showered and were cleaned up. He didn't find them at a wedding in their, you know, nice robes, nice ointments and perfumes. He found them in the mess of their life where they toil, where they sweat, where they're smelly. They probably didn't just smell a fish, but all kinds of other body odors. Jesus doesn't come to the healthy, he said. He comes to the sick. So I don't know where you are in your life today, but you may be in one of your smelliest, messiest, most disgusting seasons of your life. You're even disgusted about yourself. But Jesus is right here today. Because he promised where two or three are gathered, I'll be there. And he called them and he said, hey, come. He didn't just say, come see. Come check it out. Come kick the tires. Come go for a test drive. He said, come, follow me. And for three years, with these four and eight more, he showed them what his life is like and what they're following. They weren't just following, you know, walking behind. Their call as disciples, and we know this because of how their life ended. Their life, they started to follow him in such a way that they started to follow his way. Not just follow in his way, but follow his way. They saw him on the cross. In their fear, they ran away. You know, here he tells them in the painting, he says to them, one of you will betray me. They watched what happened. They saw how he dealt with betrayal. He could have ended it. He knew who the betrayer was. He saw him coming in the garden. Judas came with the Romans and the, the, uh, the, temple, priest, uh, the temple guards. And they came to arrest Jesus. He could have with one breath gotten rid of the situation. Blow them all down. Peter thought, yeah, I have a sword. And in the painting, it's beautiful. In the painting, you can't really see it. But right here, do you see that little thing here in that hand? I don't know if you can see that. It's Peter holding a knife. So Leonardo actually built that imagery into the painting to prepare us to realize that at the end of this meal, when they go to the garden, the guards will come and Peter's got the sword and he's going to cut off the ear. But Jesus' hands are extended to the bread and to the cup. And he's telling them, and also built into this also is the, the imagery of this is my body, take, eat. This is my cup. This is, in this cup is my blood, drink. And, and in there as well is like the shock of what are we going to do? We eat your body and drink your blood? He built all that into it. But the 12 are the key. And in this picture, we see how they started in these verses and how they were trained. But even then, they still didn't understand. Even at the end of the supper, they had puzzled looks 
And he captured it beautifully. Sometimes you and I have puzzled looks. We don't understand what God is doing. We don't understand why people are doing what they're doing because as Christians they should be doing differently. Sometimes we don't understand what we're doing, let alone others. How can I as a believer do what I'm doing? This is disgusting. But Jesus said to them, he called and they left their father in the boat with the hired men and followed him. He called and he said, come, follow me. I will send you out to fish for people. You know, if this was a meeting of pastors about to be ordained, if this was a meeting at the seminary, I would tell you, Jesus didn't send you to the clean. He sent you to the fish. He sent you to fish for people. People that are drowning. People that are stuck under the water, the weight of their lives. But I can tell you the same thing. Because you are called to be going exactly like Peter and J Andrew and James and John. We're all called to be followers of Jesus. And he sent us out to be fishers of men. It wasn't just the 12. It was go find people in their circumstance, buried under the water, and get them out. Fish for them. Find where they are. Build your networks correctly. Mend your nets. Have your relationships with everyone healthy. In the church, outside the church. You know, the nets are made of rope, string, rope, right? Sometimes the weight of fish can rip that, especially if it's been used too much. So especially us as the church, when we have been used to the hardships of relationship. You know, we, we, in Armenian, in English as well, I'm on my last nerve. You know that expression? Like if you push a little bit more, my nerve will tear. And look out. My fury will come out. And you'll see the worst of me. It's like that with the nets. When you meet people and they start grinding at your emotions and making you feel like, ah, this is a toxic person. This person is not good for my soul. I want to get away from them. They're not the problem as much as me. You know, if, if I'm finding somebody toxic, they're not the issue. I am. So Jesus sent them and told them to go and fish for, for people. Paul, who wasn't in that painting because he was the one that was born into the family of God later, also became an apostle of Jesus. These disciples became, he called them apostles. You know what apostles are? They're sent ones. They're ones that go out and expand the reach of the kingdom. They're not evangelists. They don't get, go out to tell the good news. They're like Leonardo. They create. They establish. They open doors that were closed before. 
they reach into places where the gospel hasn't been to establish, just like Rome used to, to establish outposts. In other words, they're missionaries. They're, today the word missionaries is totally confused because we use it for people that go out into other countries to evangelize or to become pastors. But that's not the right word. The missionary or the apostle, the emissary, is the one who represents the kingdom that they're a part of to take that kingdom culture to places that culture doesn't exist. And that's you and me. We have that. Jesus is the high priest and the apostle, the great apostle of the faith, because he was the one that did that first in the greatest way. But he said that you will also, I'll give you my spirit for you to do greater things. So these 12 became known not only as disciples because they were students being taught. That's what discipleship is. In Armenian, we don't have a word for disciple. We have the word for student. Ashagert. It just means student. Disciple means student. So it's easy for Armenians to get it. Other languages, in Arabic, it's the same. Telmiz. Talmaza discipleship right so some some languages the word discipleship and the word student are so integrated that christians in those cultures get what it means easier but somehow in in the english language we've made it a different word but the root of that word the etymology of that word the meaning of that word the true meaning of disciple is a student that's being mentored so they weren't just disciples but they were disciples that now became known as apostles who go and make other disciples. One of them, Paul, in Corinthians, he gives advice. And these guys knew how to live that way because Peter was a married man. His mother-in-law was sick, remember? And Jesus went and visited them in Galilee and he healed her. She had a fever. Paul gets it. And so did the others because they lived their lives that way. Paul says, I mean, brothers and sisters, the appointed time has grown short. What's the appointed time? The time when the kingdom not only has come near, but the kingdom is here. The kingdom of our Lord has become the kingdom of all things on earth. His kingdom today is in heaven. And we pray, Father in heaven, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's how he taught these 12 to pray. So they were waiting for the day of the fulfillment of that prayer. But they also knew that there is a partial, small-scale fulfillment every day. But the appointed time has grown short. Have you ever flown on a flight and you have your ticket and your boarding pass you can get your boarding pass online 24 hours before the flight right okay so 24 hours before the appointed time of the flight time becomes compressed the things that you have to do in that last 24 hours it's growing short and i love to pack in that 24 hours and i put my family through stress because usually stuff comes up last minute and I end up racing to the airport. 
The Lord has liberated the children out of this. Now they're adults and they have their own families. It's just Silva. Unless one of you guys is driving us. So let foot on the gas and boom, right? Thank God we pray and there are no tickets so far. So forever. Anyway, but my, I'm not suggesting you start speeding. That's not what I'm trying to say. But I'm trying to say that when it comes to the appointed time and the closer you come to that time, things that you do in that time become really compressed. And right now, Paul is saying the appointed time has grown short. In other words, we're getting closer and closer and closer to that time. From now on, he's saying, this is how you ought to live. Let those who have wives be as though they had none. Does that mean divorce your wife and go and, and just be free? Whatever freedom means at that point. No, he's saying live as though you have a responsibility to her as a brother. You have a responsibility to the Lord as a son. To the family of God as a daughter and a son. Let those who have wives be as though they had none. And those who mourn, does the reason for the mourning disappear? No. The reality is there still. As though they were not mourning. So a shift in focus because time is coming. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. So don't focus on the things of this life that are temporary and going to shift. And that's how these guys were living their lives. That's why when they came to kill Peter, they crucified him upside down because he didn't want to be crucified like his own master. They were going to crucify him. But he says, no, I don't deserve to be crucified with that level of comfort on the cross as Jesus did. Forget the discomfort of it. He wanted to have even more because he's not greater than his master. And those who buy as though they had no possessions. Does that mean you, you, you sell your property, you sell your cars, you sell your home and all of that no you have all those things but you don't live as though you depend on them and they're your everything and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it deal with it but your perspective is different for the present form of this world is passing away the time is now compressed we're getting closer to that time where the kingdom is coming we are getting closer to the time that we need to do something different. Live different. Live different. So to summarize these points, when Jesus shows up in anybody's life, anytime, and today, is he here? If you're not sure, let's pause for a minute. Close your eyes. Seriously, pause, close your eyes. And ask him, Lord, are you here right now? Are you speaking to me? So when Jesus shows up in the lives of these four disciples, when he showed up, the first thing that happens is that the kingdom of God comes near to you. What does that mean? That means the principles, the culture, the power, the gifts, the healing, the reconciliation, the restoration, all of it is coming near to you. Because in that kingdom, there's no death. In that kingdom, there's no tears. He will wipe away every tear. In that kingdom, there's no sickness. 
in that kingdom, there's harmony. The lion and the lamb are together. And he invites you. When he comes near, he extends an invitation. And the first thing, the first part of that invitation is repent. Don't keep going down the path you're going. You need to make a U-turn. And on this highway of life, this U-turn is allowed. There are other highways that have big signs, no U-turns. This highway of your life has a U-turn available. You may have done it before, but turn back. You may have turned your back on God. But he's standing here today. He's saying, the kingdom has come near to you. Turn around. Come back to me. Believe the good news. Leonardo painted some of the paintings and, and one of them, the guy on the far right, I think Thaddeus, he's got him facing out. Some conjecture, who knows, that he was painting his own face in that because he had turned his back against God. But he had been skeptical at times. Believe the good news. Believe that the kingdom is good. That God loves you. Oh, how he loves us. And the last part, this is critical. Follow him. But he doesn't just ask you to do this tomorrow. If he's here, he's asking you to do it immediately. Immediately. So if we go back to the Santa Maria del Grazie, and we look at the painting one more time. There's two types of people in that room when their visitors are going through, the tourists are going through. And today, I pray there's not two different kinds of people today here. Because there's those that are in the painting and those that are standing there watching it. They're not in the play. They're not in the scene. You could be a Christian who's just watching. You could be a Christian who's not engaged, who's reading their Bible, who's praying, but is not engaged, not fishing for men, just watching, not following. You've come. That's wonderful. But you're not in the picture taking the communion with them. You're not following Jesus in the real sense of following him. So I pray that today you make the decision to follow him and jump out of the crowd and join him in the painting. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for your constant invitation. You never give up. John saw a picture of you standing at the door knocking. You never turn away. You're knocking, knocking, knocking. I pray today that you knock on our hearts. And I pray that our hearts remain open to trust you and to follow you and to believe in your good news and to walk out with you this journey. Father, touch each one of us where we need to be touched. Don't make us be comfortable with being spectators. I pray your blessing on every person here. 
Bless us, Lord, exactly where we need. Whatever nets need mending in our lives, come in and mend them. Whatever last nerves have been stretched and have tore us apart, heal us today. For the kingdom is near. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you between now and next time we're together. May his presence live visibly, tangibly in your life. And we look forward to being together here Friday to pray as a church. Be sure to remember not to go to your small group on Friday, but come here, those of you on the Friday night small group. Have a wonderful week. Love you and bless you. Look forward to what God has in store next.